As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. How'd you like Anne of Green Gables? Wasn't it scary as heck? <laughs> hey, readers. I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 138. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Today, I'm having a bookish heart-to-heart with Gwen Glazer and Frank Calarius about serving the public by way of literacy. Gwen and Frank work in unique roles at the New York Public Library System and together host the wonderful podcast, The Librarian is In. Readers, I learned a lot about what it's been like to see the role of librarians shift over the past decade, how each library adapts to meet their patrons' needs, how you can give back to your library in valuable ways, and how all of you are going to want Gwen's job. Gwen and Frank are a joy to talk to, and I think you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's get to it. Gwen and Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Hi. Now is especially a great time to be talking about libraries with summer reading and new releases. Uh, Kids are out of school, if that's you. I don't know about you all. We have a ton of teachers and students in our audience, and it's like a whole new world in summer of possibility. (laughs) It is. It is indeed. It's a different time in summer. Actually, I should say it's not so much a different time. When I first started, like 20, uh, here I am launching in, 25 years ago in the library, it used to be summer was this very big downtime. And now we've noticed in the last five, six, seven, eight years, there's no difference in busyness during the summer as during any other season, which is sort of cool. That's so interesting because of the branch I live next door to for the first 13 years of my adult life. Does that sound like all wistful and poetic and like it should be sepia toned? (laughs) Their circulation is way, way up in the summer because summer reading is so big. They have so many kids in that neighborhood. Okay. Well, now's probably a good time to talk about what your libraries are like. You both work in the New York Public Library System. What do you do there? And also, Frank, 25 years, are you serious? Yeah. You don't sound like an old man, Frank. I am an old man. (laughs) I'm very old. I'm very, I could be both your parents. Uh, (laughs) Gwen, why don't you start? Okay, I'll start. Since you have the more 
iconoclastic position. I, I'm not sure about that, but I have a position that I feel like is less sort of relevant maybe to exactly what we are talking about right now. Um, because I once was a branch librarian and once had a kind of like traditional, you know, talking to patrons, doing reference, wandering around, taking care of a collection kind of job. Um, but currently what I do at the New York Public Library is that I am a recommendations librarian in the reader services unit. My boss and I sort of joke that it's it's like a dream job that shouldn't exist, uh, but that's actually not a joke because it kind of that's is That's exactly dream job. what I was just thinking. <laughs> yeah, it's really, and it really is pretty amazing too. Um, it really is just doing book recommendations in all kinds of different forms, both directly and then helping the staff to feel more comfortable talking about books with patrons. That's really my focus is books and book recommendations. Well, I should also add now that I've established my longevity, but even before like I started, there was no such thing as a reader's recommendation department in the library. There was like 50, 60 years ago, from what I read historically, I was not there. In my last 20 years or so, there was never that department. And I think with the rise of digital and internet and blah, 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 there is that need for recommendations and interchange with other people who are reading. And it didn't exist until when did it start? I think it was about five years ago. Yeah, like five years and ago. And it really, it happened because of a sort of a really positive, I think, organizational shift where libraries for a really long time have been so many things to so many people. We do a tremendous number of things um, that I think in somewhere in there, books got a little bit lost. And so I think there was kind of an effort to bring books and reading back to the forefront of what our sort of core mission and goals were right. without getting rid of any of the other really important things that we do, but also to bring a focus kind of back to reading. And so that's when reader services. There was a, like, I think, and I wonder if you agree, like there was a panic situation, at least for me, for a couple of years, about 10 years ago, about the rise of digital, the rise of the internet, where's, where do we get information? How do we read books that made libraries and librarians wonder, like, where are we? What what are we doing? Where, Where are we going to be? Like, it was what we did over. And I think what Gwen said is absolutely right. But what's also even as important is that it was matched by the public's desire. It wasn't like, we're going to focus on reading because we're a library. Mm-hmm. We did that as as well, but the public was like, we love reading too. And it, it became, what happened is all, all the digital stuff just made more choice. Now you can read a mm-hmm. physical book, you can read a digital book, you can read however you want. It's a landscape of choice that is now leveled off and everybody's sort of talking about books. So anyway. Well, you can't shut us up because now I have something to say about that too. <laughs> Um, Which is that for a long time, I think you're right, I actually wasn't a librarian yet when this conversation was really sort of at its peak, I think. But I do think that the people felt that there was this huge threat from digital materials, which to me, in retrospect, like starting at this job and starting as a librarian after that panic, it feels so silly to me because it's all about the message, right? It's not the medium, it's the message. And so the fact that you're reading a book on an e-reader versus the fact that you're reading a physical book, it makes it really like truly, as long as you're reading a book, what difference does it make what device you're doing it on? And it's fine for you to have a preference. Lots of people have preferences. I personally love both of those things and really value both of them. And I think it set up this sort of false dichotomy where people felt like they had to choose. And they were like, but I love books. I love the way books smell. I love the, the feeling of holding a book in my hand. And all of that is great. Nobody's going to make you give up books. Like just because digital stuff exists doesn't mean that you have to choose. So I think what the internet did also, it just revealed all the readers out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it almost revealed amazingly how many readers there are. And connecting with libraries they su- supposedly trust, like the New York Public Library, it's been a wonderful thing. 
in a typical day, what do you do? So it's focusing on book recommendations in lots of different formats. And so I do some direct service every day where I answer uh, patrons' requests for books, um, which usually are sort of read-alikes, like I really loved uh, Stephen King's It, What Should I Read Next kinds of things over email. I do a little bit of that every day, usually about 10 questions every day. Um, which is good. It makes, it feels like calisthenics. That feels like I keep in shape by doing that. (laughs) Usually in the evenings actually is when I answer those. And so we also provide recommendations on Twitter and Facebook. So we are pretty engaged in social media. I write blog posts that do uh, book recommendations. And I also curate blog posts uh, sort of calling out to our whole staff of book experts saying, here's a question of the week. We usually do one or two a month trying to say, can you recommend a book about X topic or what's something you're really excited to read this summer? Or, you know, everybody's talking about Game of Thrones. What's a book that you think is similar? Uh, So I I spend a lot of time writing and editing. And then I also spend some time pretty much every day dealing with our best books for kids and teens committees, uh, which produce two lists at the end of the year um, of books that our librarians are the most excited about and our library staff members think deserve to sort of be raised up. So on a typical day, I would do all of those things, usually plus something else, plus some training, plus recording a podcast, stuff like that. Your Facebook Live. Yes, answering questions on Twitter. Well, Facebook Live, you answer live recommendations, yes. which could be stressful. It can it can be stressful, but it's also really fun. <laughs> a challenge yeah. for, for you. I don't know if I could do that. That's what my day looks like. I think it's fascinating that you are recommending books directly to readers, but you're also helping librarians become better book recommenders. Yeah. How do you advise them? Like, I'm a new librarian, and you just overheard me tell somebody to read, I don't know, Anna Green Gables after they loved Stephen King. So (laughs) how do you coach me on how to listen to readers and better recommend what to do next? And I'm sure we could talk about this all day, but, like, where do you start? I have to interject. I would love if you really did that, and I would love to see... (laughs) That patron come back to you and you with like your lovely face just smiling very earnestly like, how'd you like Anne of Green Gables? Wasn't it scary as heck? And that person thinking, this woman's crazy. Oh, that's so funny. I love that story. All right. Thank you. I love it. So that's a really good question. And basically what we do is to go back to the guru of Reader's Advisory, whose name is Nancy Pearl. Um, She really sort of established this idea about how to listen to people talk so that you can make a good book recommendation. And the core of her advice is a question that is, tell me about a book that you like. Mm -hmm. So you're not, and, and it's very specifically worded and it's very important to word it that way because when you, and you can kind of see this happen actually when you interact with a person, if you say, tell me about your favorite book, people freak out. Like they can't pick a favorite. It makes them really panicky. They get really nervous. And another thing that we talk about in our jobs a lot is like this sort of active reader's advisory versus passive reader's advisory. A lot of what we're trained to do in school is have these like direct one-on-one interactive conversations with people. But the reality is that most of the book recommending that most library staff members do is not that kind of book recommending that it's not I'm looking at Frank because his his branch is a little bit of an outlier because they have a lot of readers who interact a lot with their staff but for most of us who were talking about books online or who are working in a branch that's very high usage but maybe doesn't circulate as many books or I even think about myself when I was a kid like I never went to a librarian and said hey can you recommend a book for me to read I don't think I ever had any interaction with my childhood librarians in any capacity and I was a very heavy library user so we also think a lot about ways to make book recommendations either just based on our own personal reading habits or read alikes um, so that 
people who aren't actually talking to us will be able to understand kind of where we're coming from and maybe get some ideas for new books to read without that personal interaction. So I'm thinking about the books on the end caps, the books in the special displays. Exactly. Am I going to the right place? Yes, exactly. The books in the blogs. Yep, exactly. Books and blog posts on displays. We also do these things in our library that we're very <coughs> fond of uh, called staff picks where we describe uh, it. I love staff picks. Yeah, right. They're Anywhere. Great, right? Yeah, they're very right. successful. And especially in libraries where you're, you're often kind of faced with like this giant shelf of faceless, nameless books and you're like, oh, yep. what should I read? Yep. Just having something in there that says, I'm a page and I love this book or this book helped me train for a marathon or, you know, this book reminds me so much of Anne of Green Gables. Like <laughs> that kind of thing is really, really helpful and a way that we like to think about doing sort of passive reader's advisory too. Oh, wow. That sounds delightful. I'm glad this is a job in the world. Then. <laughs> Thank you. I am too. All right, Frank, tell me about yours, especially since you have an outlier of a branch. I've been, I've been chomping now at the bit. <laughs> <laughs> Back when you were a very young man. I know. And I still am. <laughs> Um, I had a little work done, but um, is that I feel like, and it's sort of fun to say this just in a fun way, it's, I feel very antithetical to what, what Gwen just said. Like, I feel like where I come in is sort of like the other side of the, the story. And it sort of rooted in that panic I mentioned of a couple of years ago about where's digital taking us. And I personally like was like what, very concerned with where am I going? And I'm I, it made me so energetic and so enthusiastic to sort of to use that horrible word that I'm glad we don't use anymore, relevance. Like, how are we going to be irrelevant? <laughs> I'm so tired. That question is over for me. The libraries are 1,000% relevant. But I, I got very um, focused. And I, what I realized my passion was, and I should say parenthetically, that a librarian who's in charge of a library like I am, a particular branch, really does need to eventually find, by whatever means you can, your community that you love to serve, that you learn through the years and it takes time that you can make mistakes with that community and that community will understand you that you can sort of speak their language that you can in whatever way feel connected to them that you can offer stuff that sort of gets a response and that's why I, I use the arbiter of whether you have your community or not is whether you can make mistakes and the community be like oh yep yeah, we get what you were trying to do mm-hmm. let's go in this direction or whatever mm-hmm. and I love that that you can make making mistakes is so important in librarianship I think what does a librarian mistake look like me having an enthusiastic idea for a program let's say and then someone says to me which the I work in a library in Greenwich Village in New York City and it's a very activist, very liberal, very artistic, very, I think, fair-minded, very interested, engaged, aspirational, intellectual community, and not afraid to say what they want to say. And they have a reputation for also activizing and getting stuff done that they want to get stuff done. And so they will, and I love this. Like when I first, let's put it this way, when I first started there, uh, I went to a little party to sort of meet and greet. And some gal came up to me and said, so you're the current manager. (gasps) And the key there was current, meaning you're not going to be around much longer if you know, you might not be around much longer, so I'm not going to trust you. And I actually loved her immediately because I was like, you should be wary of me. Who am I? I'm walking into your community. I'm in charge of your library. Why should you trust me? And then 18 years later, here I am. So <laughs> it takes it takes time. That's another thing. Like, you know, it seems like people like to go from job to job to job, which is maybe not the way it was in a previous generation. And I didn't think it would be for me, but I've come to realize that longevity, if you do find the community you love to work in, is so important because you become a part of it. 
in, in a very real way. Like longevity, if, if nothing else, breeds some sort of trust. Of course, you have to have a lot of other ingredients as well. Do you know what I mean? Well, I was just having a conversation with a bookstore owner in a small town. And she said when she came in, people were super skeptical of her. Like, are you going to want to stay here? Right. Like, mm. and aren't you kind of young to be doing the job you're doing? Mm. Like deciding what we are going to be able to pluck off your shelves? Like, mm. I don't know about this, you young whippersnapper. Exactly. That's actually, you know, used to saying that made me realize, I wonder if there's something about libraries or reading or things that go on in libraries that is very much about trust. People take their books and their reading and their communities really seriously. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing, but yeah. oh, it sounds hard if you're new. That maybe was the first step in realizing I was in the right community because I actually liked the fact that she wasn't going to be like, hi, welcome. But that she was honest. And maybe the honesty of saying, I don't trust you. And I was like, you shouldn't because you don't know me. So then I talked about a couple of years ago when I decided what to focus on about in the landscape of choice and digital and all that and where libraries were going. My focus became physical. Like I became obsessed with how do I make this library the best physical space? How do I bring people into this physical space? How do I meet people? How do I bring people together? I left the computers and I left the the computers and the digital to all the other young librarian. No, I don't think it's age related, to be honest. I think there are plenty of older librarians who are obsessed with digital and stuff like that. I don't think it Mm -hmm. plays out age wise. I've talked to some 20 something librarians who are not at all into some digital formats and only use their phones to text. Anyway, that's another whole story. But so I focused on the physicality. So was that because you felt a personal passion for the physical or is that because you felt like librarians were handling the digital? No, you hit it. I had to find my passion. I had to realize or focus my passion. I was very enthusiastic about libraries. And then I said, I want to focus on what I want to do. And that was what I wanted to do. And I also felt like the library I manage is a very beautiful library. So we have that, I have that to me almost responsibility. It's not like, ooh, I am in a beautiful library. I can relax and kick up my feet. I felt like I had to really, really work to earn that managerial position of this beloved landmark building. And I wanted to make it alive inside. I wanted it to be in a living place. So passion comes first. I always tell librarians that I work with, like, you know, your programming, your book recommendations, everything comes from your interests. Don't fake it. I don't think there's a need to fake it because we're human beings talking to other human beings, either online like Gwen does most of the time or in person like I do. And that's where it's from. I can't know everything. And I have no problem. When I was younger, I used to feel a sense of tragic failure if I didn't know Something. If someone asked me, well, I love Danielle Steele. Can you recommend a book like her? I'm like, I've never read Danielle Steele to myself. And I'm like, I don't know how to do that. And I feel like a failure. Now, if I was at the desk, I would turn to my colleague and say, you love Danielle Steele. Help, help me out here. Well, okay. I'm, and I'm I think that's a pleasure to work team. <laughs> what do you mean? So this is why this is why our dynamic is so delightful. Uh, besides <laughs> your loveliness? Besides your loveliness. Oh. Um, so... Another alternative to that would be not necessarily for you to try to come up with what you think is like Danielle Steele, but to have them tell you what they like about Danielle Steele. Yeah. And as they're talking, like you might hear things that make you be like, oh, for sure. Well, wait a minute. I do have another recommendation because like our sort of one of our kind of guiding principles is that like 
people don't necessarily like Danielle Steele because they only want to read romance or they only mm-hmm. want to read a page turner or they only mm-hmm. want to read something like that. It's the way that it makes you feel. And Absolutely. So you might be able to recommend a book that makes no, you, you know. I was alighting. I was going to another point, but you're right, because I do engage in conversations for sure about mm-hmm. books I haven't read. So that right. happens all the time and I, I love it. But what I was saying was uh, that that sense of physicality and of working with people, like how I felt like I had to be the know-it-all librarian. Oh, right. yeah, I yeah. really love, as the manager, like seeing, I don't feel jealous anymore when I see another librarian really engaged with another mm-hmm. patron. And I guess as a new librarian, you'll know that in your where you work, every library, librarian has their so-called fans, like has their people who say, oh, is Annie there today? <laughs> or is Gwen in? Or, and they want, oh they, God, and I love that because feeling. they find the connection where they could talk about the books they love with that person. Yeah. I think that's totally fine and fair. I mean, it's like a... You like Goodreads, you like reading reviews on Amazon. It's the same thing. It's mm-hmm. but it's a person, and you like that person. So I do – I don't know how I got in the subject, but I love that different librarians find their, their people, so to speak, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that if they don't come to me, I used to see it as a failure. I guess I'm just talking about my giant ego. Uh, <laughs> now I actually love it. I just calmed how down. How in, oh, <laughs> slam. Podcast slam down. Slap down. Okay. So I, I focused on the physical space and how to really how to how do I bring people into the library and how do I, how do I bring neighbors to meet neighbors and also to interact with an expert or with a, an interesting experience like a play or whatever, and I also see the library as a crucible for creativity. Like Greenwich Village is in a great neighborhood, historically very creative neighborhood. Any groups that want to meet there, create there, write there, I sort of love it that they're there. What's interesting about being a manager sometimes is like I have so much going on and sometimes 50% of what goes on, literally, I don't really know because mm-hmm. I use our space, create in our space, and then when I talk to the people after or they tell me, come see our play, oh, I wrote a script that was sold, or I did something, I'm like, whoa, that really happened in the library. That's sort of amazing. But sometimes I don't even know what's going on in there, mm-hmm. which is sort of a, That's great. a cool thing because it's trust. It's also trusting. I engage with who wants to use the spaces and trust that they will use them wonderfully. <laughs> and they usually do. They That's almost really always nice. do. It's also trust in your staff, which is also pretty great. Yeah. So to a lot of patrons, they walk in the library, they see people at desks with name tags, and they have no idea what differentiates them from each other. What does the library branch manager actually do? Um, I can't wait yeah. to hear. <laughs> it's been like three different jobs because you could, I mean, I started last century. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 1999. Wow. You know, the world was a lot different. The library world was a lot different. So I never thought, I, like I said, it would stay in one position for as long as I have. But it has changed multiple times. So it feels like different jobs all the time. Um, I remember very well when I started that the library world was very much like, we don't do that, we do this. And if I had an idea like, maybe we should have like put on a play, I would be told then, we don't do that. And now... It's the opposite. It's like, do whatever that's reactive to the community, whatever you think might work. For a while, we used to say, well, times are changing. Do you remember that? Because the (laughs) library did, New York Public Library didn't change for a very long time. And we always said, well, it's too big. The organization's just far, far, far too big to change. And I I was satisfied with that answer. I was like, it's a giant organization. But then it changed so radically and so much for the better. I mean, it gets better and better. 
I realized, oh, there is no such thing as we're changing because we're always going to change. In other words, the librarian profession is not about, okay, I got these skills. I have these skills. I'm done. I'm set. Here's what I do. Change is the constant. So you never stop being reactive. You asked what I do. I feel like what I do most of the day is respond to inquiries and to needs. I want to take a computer class. I am a poet. I want to do a reading. I am furious that your sidewalk is broken. I, you know, things like that, like, and being very reactive. And, and most of the time I love it, but I realize that I can never quite dismiss a request because it might lead to something really interesting that the library can do. I mean, of course I'm blanking on showing off about all the fabulous things I've done, <laughs> but like, you know, it, some of the programs I've done have been so gigantic and so, you know, taken place in the whole building. And it started with me just saying yes to a person like, Hey, I have an idea. And I'm like, you know what? Let's try that. And then suddenly it's a thing. So I never uh, feel like librarianship and as a manager of a physical space, I feel like I'm never quite going to fully say, ah, I got it. Because the library is a space. It's real estate. It's You actually have space to do stuff. So anything can happen within that space, really. I mean, almost anything. Frank, you sound really excited and maybe a little... Crazy. Surprised? <laughs> I wouldn't say that. About, about the fact that it's changing and it's changing so much and for the better. And I'd love to hear what you see when you look around at what's different now than it was, say, 10 years ago. It's interesting that you say surprised. I guess it's it probably is an element within me because like when I graduated library school, it was 1995, just before the internet hit huge and the library started getting internet enabled computers. Um, so I was the last like sort of graduating class um, that was taught in the old school, which I wow. sort of love. Um, I sort of love the fact that I, I had that experience. And then when I was first training at New York Public Library, it was with these fantastic librarians, these great ladies, mm -hmm. usually. It was that old school, like entering into a tradition of what libraries had been for a hundred years. And it hadn't so-called changed that much. And it didn't need to because the library did what it did. It was the only show in town. We had the books, we had the information. And you, you know that story, which can also flip to the other way with that horrible archetype of librarians being like, you know, <laughs> very mean people. Right. But, uh, you know, they were maybe we were a little arrogant because we had all the information and the internet just said, chill out because now it's everywhere and you have to sort of, you know, be a part of that. I feel like when I was truly panicked eight, nine years ago about where the library was going and where I was going in it, where I, my role was in yeah. it, technology would help release something new every year and there would be new iterations of something. There'd be new formats. There'd be all that stuff. And I thought, I, you know, I can't worry about this. It's going to keep going and going and doing what it does. Let it do what it does. I can't worry about it. So I, then I accepted that I'm never quite going to be able to lose my vigilance about what I want to do and my enthusiasm because it looks like technology change is the new norm. It's just what it is. I make sure as a manager that technology is served to the public and they are engaged in it. But my particular passion is not that. So I just thought I am going to keep on the lookout for people's creativity, people's interests, people's need to be together. And that's my focus. And that yields never ending surprises. So that's why I look at it as changing constantly. Like I don't think the 
technological world will ever stabilize. Gwen, I'm so curious to hear what you think, since you are not in a branch, you have a broader view. Is that assuming too much? I, I think I have a different view for sure. And I think like on a, yeah, yeah. I mean, broader, I think broader, you're right in a sense that because I don't have sort of people standing in front of me every day, kind of like meeting the direct demands of their request, which is something I actually really, mm-hmm. not to get cheesy, but that I really admire about Frank is that like, <laughs> you're really able to meet it with such equanimity. Equin- Did I say that word right? Equanimity? Yeah. Equanimity? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I Sorry. should say... Sorry. We're readers. Yeah. We never <laughs> exactly. say these words That's out loud. That's a total example of a word that I read all the time and I know what it means, but I don't know how to I mean, say the, it. The people but are you, the best and the, and the hardest yeah, thing about the job, right. for sure. It's but, like, I never wanted to rise higher than this position because I don't want to be out of the front line. But it is yeah. tough right. being on demand all day mm. long. But it's also the only show for me. So. Yeah, yeah. But it's really tough to sort of to deal with that. And I mean, I was a frontline staff member. Like it is it is a very exhausting profession at the end of the day because people are coming to you with needs constantly. But my job, because it doesn't require that, you're right. I do think I sort of have like a, a more privileged or bird's eye view of what is going on. And I do think that like one of the ways that libraries are changing a lot is that we used to be gatekeepers of information. And now I think instead of keeping those gates. (laughs) I think it's much more about what we in the library world call information literacy, which is really sort of trying to help people sort through all of the information that's out there. So that instead of like trying to tell you like, this is how you use the card catalog and kind of like guide you through looking for the information yourself, because it was always our job to help people find their own information and help people find their own way. But now I think it's very much our job to, to help people figure out what's real and what isn't. And so a lot of libraries are doing things that focus on like, what is fake news and how do you tell a good source online? And I do think that that resonates with my job too, because there's so much noise and chatter around books these days, which is mm-hmm. wonderful in a lot of ways. Like I love book Twitter. Book Twitter has bought, brought a ton to my life. Um, and I know about a lot of things that I wouldn't without it. But at the same time, you really need somebody to help you sort through that sometimes. And that's why sites like Goodreads and sites like your site, Anne, I think really help people kind of narrow down that gigantic field of choices um, to be able to figure out what where they fit into the whole thing. And that's kind of how I see my job as well. I have never heard the phrase information literacy and it's, it's so perfect. It's sort of perfect, but it's also sort of library jargon that like I wish, I kind of wish you could get away from that. It's accessible right? library it, jargon. Like, if you used to say that to a person, like they don't understand what that means. Now all the What Should I Read Next listeners are totally tracking with you. You can go into your library and be like, talk to me about information literacy and your librarian's eyes will light up with joy. <laughs> The way to their heart. That leads me to a question I'm really curious about. What do you wish that you saw your patrons, either directly or the stories I'm sure you hear from the librarians you work with, what do you wish they would do in or with the library? What do you wish they knew? What resources do you wish they used? Either that they don't or that you feel like they're really underutilized and you wish they were used more. Yes, I have two answers to this question. Um, One is really simple and it's the holds list. The number of people who do not put books on hold at their libraries is very high. I think that that's actually like a really specialized thing that we librarians take for granted that people know how to do because we view it as basic. It is not basic. And I think a lot of people don't know how to do it and don't even know that it's an option. So probably all of your listeners do, but I feel like I'm going to say it anyway, just in case. 
the holds list is just a way of putting your name on a waiting list, essentially, for a book, uh, a physical book or a DVD or any kind of physical materials. And there's also digital holds lists and digital waiting lists um, for books that you can download from the library. And so it just really means that you get the thing that you really want as soon as you can possibly get it. And another thing I think people don't know is that you can put a hold on a book that hasn't been released yet. As long as it's in the catalog, if you know that your author is writing a new book and you really want to read it and you're super excited, you don't have to go to the bookstore on the day Mm -hmm. that it opens. You can put a hold on it in the library catalog and then you'll be one of the first to get that book, which sometimes, sometimes can happen really, really fast. Gwen, that's interesting because a lot of heavy holds users, I think, cannot imagine people not knowing about that service. (laughs) So... I'm glad you're yeah, promoting it. it. It really, I was always really surprised how many people did not know that. People who were like huge readers and really, really into books just had no clue that they could do that. Well, you don't know what you don't know and you have to go to the website. And if you're coming, I can, I can see it. What's the second thing? Our eBooks. The fact that libraries have eBooks and e-audiobooks that can be downloaded right from our website. Um, it sometimes is not the easiest process. I will be the first to admit that I don't think that libraries and vendors always, um, play nicely together. And I think that it's not always easy to find, to figure out the way that you download a book, particularly since people are doing it onto all sorts of different devices. But there's, so there's a little bit of a learning curve, but the learning curve is totally worth it. So easy, so fun. You can never get a fine on an ebook because you can never return it late because it just automatically returns it for you. So when a patron says, I have no idea how to do this. What do you recommend? Um, There's a couple things that they can do. One is there are instructions um, that you can always use online and you can always just Google it and usually you will find it and it will be very easy. Another is go to a workshop at the library. Um, I used to run actually in my old job in Maryland. I used to run and help organize uh, these workshops. We had a a very high number of really awesome older readers at that library. And right around the holidays, their kids would all be getting them Kindles and Nooks and stuff (laughs) for the holidays. And so... So you knew right, how to plan exactly. your calendar. We would add like extra sessions then. Um, and we also, another part of that program that I loved was that high school volunteers also worked with them to like show them how to get library books under the So That's amazing. It was so, it was really, really great. And like, I have to say that because I'm so comfortable, maybe too comfortable where I work and I know the patrons, I've sometimes gotten very upset with that phenomenon. Really? Like a person comes in and says, my grandson got me a Kindle and I don't know how to use it. And I'm like, that grandson is a cheapo because getting you a technological <laughs> device was easy for him. And he just thought, oh, let, let's bedazzle my grandma with a electronic device. And she is so anxious about it, doesn't know how to use it. Per- so you particular, can show her. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but be thoughtful when you give gifts. But absolutely train them how to use it. But there was one particular woman I'm thinking of who was so anxious about it and so didn't really want to use it, I just actually put like slammed my hand down and said, look to your left, there is a giant room full of books. Go check one out and don't worry about this device. Just be-. And then you know what she said? Well, it probably cost a lot of money. I'm like, it's not about money! It's free. Oh, I get very upset about that. <laughs> that is so funny. I would have the completely opposite reaction to that. I would be like, oh my God, I'm so glad you thought to come to the library so we can help you use this. All right, so I'm a bad librarian. <laughs> You're a terrible librarian. <laughs> I just felt like she was so anxious and she was handed this anxiety. She didn't seek it yeah. out. Yeah. So, I mean... Of course the woman learned how to use her Kindle. I'm yeah. not saying it didn't do that, but I also was trying to say, <laughs> don't really what I guess I'm missing my point. I was trying to say don't be anxious. 
There's no reason yeah. to be anxi- anxious. It's just a machine. You can conquer it, one. Yes. And two, you don't have to use it all the time if you don't want to. Right. Right. Actually, that's all I'm that's, saying. And that's a huge point is that right. people, I think, sometimes get e-readers and they're like, but wait, I love books. And it's like, you can have both. Exactly. You get e-readers and physical books. I'm quite devoted to my e-reader personally um, and read a lot on it a lot of the time, but I, I would never give up physical books. Never, never, never. Right. So anyway, mm-hmm. that was a lo- very long answer to the question of what do you wish more people knew about? I, I wish that more people knew that they can download ebooks from the library. Someone is new in your branch. What do you wish everyone knew about the library? My answer would be, I wish a new patron would know, this is personal from my branch, they would know the quality and integrity of the programming we do. I sometimes feel, and maybe I'm wrong and maybe it's changed, to use that word again, that libraries certainly have a reputation for being warm and fuzzy places and also places of children where lots of children go and have great experiences, which they do. Um, But for adults, it's sort of like, oh, no, I just love the memory of it. It was great when I was a kid. And, oh, really, you have DVDs and and e-books and streaming video (laughs) and... Things like that. So I wish they would know that the library is really up to date, one. And two, the programming we we do, like theater or music or any of the things I endeavor, is super real. Like, it's an off-Broadway show. It's it's competitive with the art world out there. We have a gallery I like to show art in. I mean, and I think when people do discover it, which they don't think the library is that cultural center per se, when Mm. they do, they're like... I've heard this comment, oh my God, that that was really good. As if it shouldn't have been good. Like it should have been amateurish because the library did it. I really strive to do interesting, good things for the public to attend for free. And I think that is another issue. The free issue might also be an interpretation of that new person coming into the library that it's not as valuable, which is an interesting concept. I've even had some library patrons say, you should charge occasionally. It might add value to the person paying. They think that if they're paying, it might be more more oh, authentic and valuable. And I'm like, absolutely not. I will never, well, the library wouldn't let me. And I'm glad. But I think the library should always be 100% free. Always, always, always. And just keep raising the level of quality of what we do until, you know, when I'm old and gray in about five years, they will know that we're a good place to go for cultural arts and mm. things things like that. I focus a lot on the arts because it's the village and, it, you know, that has an historical um, connection there. And it's also something I love to, to facilitate, to help artists, to help any kind of creative person. So to know that the quality's there. I mean, we're doing a play right now with, that's, with this fantastic cast, with a legit director, and I don't think they know that the library can facilitate that kind of program. Gwen, I loved hearing how high schoolers volunteer to teach technologically less than savvy patrons how to use their Kindles. We have a lot of requests from readers, like, I want to go volunteer at my library. I don't know what to do. What are your favorite ways for patrons to get directly involved with the library and volunteering or any other way I can't think of because I'm not on the ground like you guys? Yeah, that's a great question. Volunteering is amazing. Just going and talking to the manager or to whoever is doing the volunteer coordinating at your library and just saying, like, What's something that you guys really need? Maybe they need people who know how to use their Kindle really well and can come and show patrons how to do it. Maybe they need, you know, extra help with uh, organizing library events. Maybe they need help organizing volunteers themselves. Like if you have a particular skill to offer your library, that is really, really wonderful. 
Um, another thing to do is to get involved with your local friends organization, which do fundraising for local libraries. And you can often help a lot of times friends organizations do annual book sales or semi-annual book sales. Um, I used to live in Ithaca, New York, which was wonderful and I loved it. And there's like an amazing book culture there. And they had one of the biggest book sales. I don't want to say the biggest book sale in the country, but it might be the biggest book sale in the country. It's in this gigantic old warehouse. Um, it's just full of books and they have volunteers all year long doing organizing and unpacking and sorting donations and doing things like that. And I think that would be really wonderful. And then the last thing I'm going to say is being a library trustee, it's a little bit different here at the New York Public Library, partly because we're really big. But back in Ithaca, I was a library trustee, actually. And I learned so much about the way that the library operated and the inner workings of a library. It was actually while I was in library school. I was sort of recruited by the director of the library at the time, who was an amazing person and who really wanted kind of like younger, fresher voices in the trustee roles because she was looking to make some really awesome changes at the library. And so I think that really taught me a tremendous amount about the library and I think was pretty helpful to them also um, to just have trustees who kind of really cared about the day-to-day operations and could sort of see clearly what was really going on there. Oh, that's so interesting. We actually heard from a listener who's a trustee. I'm going to play that for you real quick. Hi, Anne. This is Jill from Flat Ellen, Illinois. I think the best way that I got to know all of the wonderful things that my local library does is serving a term as a trustee. All of the programs and services and circulation materials that our library has is just its so impressive. And I've learned how our library does a great job of serving every single demographic. You know, the youngest group of kids who can check out toys. Uh, there's play packs that our librarians put together. It's especially great for grandparents to check out when their grandkids come to visit. That's one example of how we serve the young ones in our community, all the way up to our senior citizens. Our librarians do a phenomenal job providing programming and services for members of our community who live in a local assisted living facility, even though they themselves might not be able to physically get to the building. So from the littlest ones to the oldest ones in our town and everything in between, our library does a phenomenal job of meeting the needs of our community in so many fun and cool ways. It may seem odd to get the most out of your library is to give of your time, but it certainly has been a rewarding experience for me. Highly recommend volunteering so you can learn all the ins and outs of what goes on there. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's so great. And also don't underestimate how much you're really helping the library too. Like that's a really, really important job. So that's something you could do is go up to your circulation desk or your research librarian or the the two places where people always are stationed at my local Mm. branches and say, can I talk to you about being a trustee or volunteering or donating to the book sale? That's something you could do? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can always look on the website too. Gwen, so as someone who hasn't always been at the NYPL, what's unique about working in this library system? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I... There's a lot. I think its size is really impressive um, and more so more so even than its size is its diversity. Like it sort of goes without saying that a library system this size that is trying to serve the needs of so many people is going to have a lot of different stuff going on. But I'm I'm really I, I'm constantly amazed at the differences from branch to branch, at the differences between what certain users want and what other users don't want. Um, and trying to meet the needs of all of those people and sort of be one step ahead of it. Like, like the idea, sort of what Frank was talking about earlier, that, that like you're having this incredibly high-end 
quality arts programming, certainly that's true in many of our branches. And in others of our branches, that's not the focus at all. Like that has nothing to do with what's going on. And it's so much about homework help. And it's about finding tutors. And it's about, and it's really kid focused. Like there's just so much diversity in the system. And one of the <clears throat> things that we actually talk a lot to our staff about that I really try to keep in mind in my own work um, is something that a lot of a lot of people, a lot of sort of library Twitter people talk about a lot, the idea of kind of how important it is to read outside your comfort zone and to think about your patrons and the people you're trying to serve. And so I think for a long time, the history of librarianship is not always really pretty and it's not always really diverse. I'm really impressed with our staff here at NYPL, but I also think that in general, as a profession, we have a long way to go in a lot of ways. And one of the best ways to do that is to read outside your comfort zone and to read things that feel different and to not create book lists and not create sort of library materials that focus only on one kind of experience, that really focus on lots of different experiences. I think we're in a place in the world right now where it's really, really important for us to look outside ourselves. And I found a real commitment to that here that I've that I've been very consistently impressed with. Um, and so I think mm -hmm. that's something that I'm proud of to work here. And I hope that it is in lots of other places, too. Frank is a lifer. <laughs> what do you find unique about working in the New York Public Library System? A lifer. A lifer. Uh, uh, a life sentence over here. I guess that remains to be seen. Yeah, well, you're right. Uh, what's unique? I think, <laughs> like I said before, about how the gigantic system that is the New York Public Library has changed so much and been so reactive to the world around it that I don't, you know, maybe because as a lifer, I have no clue what it's like outside of the New York Public <laughs> Library, also from New York. So it's like I've been here all my life and my, most of my professional career, almost all of it. A friend of mine went to a wedding in New Orleans, met a man who lives in Kentucky, and got married. She used to work at the Soho branch at the New York Public Library, and now she does not. She left. Whoa. If that happened to you, what would you miss? If I went to another library system? And not just another library system, but like a seriously different other library system in a different part of the country. What would you think back fondly on? Now, not like better or worse or anything, but what would make you go, ah, I remember my days at the NYPL. I hope I don't insult anybody else like outside of New York City or what a big city is versus a not so big city. Sometimes I fantasize about leaving New York because New York is tough. It's crazy. It's nonstop. So sometimes I imagine like to see something not have natural beauty around me every day <laughs> rather than just, you know, giant buildings and stuff. It is a fantasy, but then I always say, I just don't think I could leave that sort of incredible diversity, that gigantic range of people, that center of a lot of things happening and being a part of that, even though I know a lot of communities across the country are diverse as well, mm -hmm. like Gwen alluded to, to encounter the amount of requests or interactions that I have during the day with such a range of people is so exciting, frankly. And it makes me learn. It really makes me learn because, like, I'm always interested. Like, I just talked about, like, having arts programs, but we also have English as Second Language programs, too, at Jefferson Market Library. And I really love having that range. It's the people. It's the people, and it's also the people I work with. I love talking to other people in the library because they also have skills and interests. Like I said, finding your communities. I talked to another adult librarian, and I assumed 
that of course she'd want to be like putting on plays and mm. having poetry readings. And she was like, no, I love doing my knitting class and my community loves that knitting class. And we talk a lot and we, we learn about books that way. And that's how we talk about books. And I was like, I would never do a knitting class. Different talents, different interests, different passions. And I love encountering that. And I love bringing it together in the library in which I particularly work. So that's a great answer. Thank you. Okay. I can't let you all go without asking you this. Can you each tell me, I'd love to hear about one book that means a lot to you. The kind, when you think about it, you just go, Oh, that book. Oh, I can answer right away. Go ahead. You go first. It's fairly recent. Gwen and I on the podcast read a book together. Occasionally we'll do that and read one book and then discuss it on the podcast. And both of us read Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. Yeah. Have you read it? Yeah, but only recently, like only in the past couple of years. Me too. I mean, I'd Me read too. it a couple of years ago, a long, t- seemed like a long time when I reread it and I thought it would be less of an experience and it was not. It was as powerful as it was the first time. And so another librarian very, here I'll toot my horn, gave me a, a compliment saying it is such a great re- book recommendation. Mo- most people come back, not did not expect the experience they were going to have that they had. But the first thing I thought was Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go that Gwen and I discussed because when Gwen and I discussed it, to me, it's very personally meaningful that we both at the same time as we were discussing it came to some realization about the book and both sort of teared up at the mm-hmm. same time and felt like we were going to lose it for a second and then regained ourselves on the podcast. And it might not have read that way on the, on the podcast, but the emotions shared with Gwen, discussing it with her, because I love Gwen and I love that book. So that moment to me and that book were so, so meaningful. And I feel like I could cry now. Oh my gosh. That's so, that is, first of all, thank you. That is really lovely. And second of all, I actually didn't really know you felt that way. And I feel the exact same that like, when I think about that book, I think about us talking about that I think about you. Yeah. You're very connected to that book. Me too. And it's so funny because I I remember very distinctly finishing that book when I was on an airplane. Oh. Right. Exactly. And then coming in. Oh, that's hard. It was like two days later coming in to like actually really process that book with you. And I feel like that's when I actually finished the book is when you and I were talking about it. So funny. So, yeah. We're so tied up in each other's reading lives. Like, both the two of us and also all people, right? But, like, things like where you finished a book or where you started a Mm -hmm. book or when you thought about a book, like, it's so present. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's true. Mm -hmm. So, what is the, what's your. Mine, so I was going to pick a book that I I think I talked about on the podcast, Mm -hmm. um, but was not one of our reading challenge books for each other. A book called Lucky Boy by Shanti Sakaram. Do you know that book, Anne? I've seen it. I've never read it, though. Oh, my goodness. It's it's just a book that I find myself thinking about all the time uh, because there's a lot of resonance with a lot of what's going on in the world right now. Um, it's the story of immigration, um, the story of refugees, and it is very, very much about motherhood and what it means to love a child also. And I have a four-year-old, and so that's a thing that I think about a lot. And it's just a book that is really, really personally meaningful to me and relevant to me. And I've recommended it a thousand times and I just really love it. And I wish everyone would read it. I love to hear about books that other people love and wish everyone would read. Mm. I want to hear what yours is. Trying to think of one that isn't just like sappy. Oh, really? Sappy's okay. I love sappy. We both love sappy. We're here for that. Okay. I'm not going sappy. Are you going to go highfalutin on us? 
I hope not. Right. Well, I talk too much about Wallace Stegner crossing the safety, mm. so I'm trying to branch out to a novel I only talk about like half as much. <laughs> and it's Maggie O'Farrell. This must be the place. Because I'm a sucker for a family story where everybody means really well, but it goes horribly anyway, and it's mm. kind of disastrous and awful, but there's a little bit of an open door at the end. I love that kind of book. <gasps> also, A Place for Us, the new one by Fatima Mirza. Oh, loved yeah. it, loved it, loved it. Oh, it's all the same notes. That's on my shelf right now. Isn't that oh, so um, Sarah Jessica Parker's first book? Yes. Yeah. And at first I was like, I'm not, I haven't seen a movie in the theater in like seven years. Like, should I really be reading the Sarah Jessica Parker imprint? But I picked it up anyway. <laughs> and it's so, now I don't know that you'll like it, Gwen, but it is the kind of book where I want everyone to read it because I loved it. And mm. I want to talk about it with them mm. right now. Mm. Fantastic. That's a great recommendation. Yeah. Thank you. And the first thing I thought when you said Matt, I, I felt like my book recommendation hat was like Ann Tyler. Is that is, is Ann Tyler like Maggie O'Farrell? Let me think. Because I thought yeah, well, of families it. who mean well where everything goes wrong. It's <laughs> sort of very Ann Tyler, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know, whatever. But I feel like Ann Tyler is a little less earnest. Mm. Like okay. I can go earnest pretty comfortably. And Ann Tyler likes to put in a character who's just adult like, right. on a regular basis. <laughs> and whims- and a lot more Where you're like, whimsical. wake up everybody, wake up and your life will be better. Good point. <laughs> Get them out of your life. See, good point. That was exactly a, a book recommendation conversation that I would have in, in the library and someone would say, well, you know, Ann Tyler's, and like you said, and then we'd move on from there. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> Will readers of one likely enjoy the other? Yes, and absolutely. Mm -hmm. Cool. Frank and Gwen, this was a delight. Thank you so much for talking libraries and, of course, books with me today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having us. This was really fun. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Gwen and Frank today. Head to the podcast site to share your favorite library memories or your favorite local library program. Or if you're a librarian, please let us know what you love about your job. The more library love, the better. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 138. That's 138. And it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. And if you like book talk, and I know you do, make sure to check out their podcast, The Librarian Is In. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Readers, next week I'll be chatting with Eric Zimmer. Eric interviews thoughtful people who have big ideas about how to make conscious, creative effort toward a life worth living on his podcast, The One You Feed. Whenever I see something about a book, I will usually follow up on it because I'll be like, well, what is that? It's like if I walk into your house and you've got a bookshelf behind you, I'm going to have a very difficult time having the conversation with you until (laughs) I can go review the bookshelf. It's going to be on my mind while we're talking. Like, what all's back there? Yeah. Carry that out into the way I move through the world. And it's like, oh, there's a sliver of a book over in the corner there. Let me go see what that is. Tune in next week to hear about how a folk story factors into Eric's reading life, his most embarrassing library experiences, and what it means to feed the good wolf. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And here's your friendly reminder that you can now listen to What Should I Read Next on Spotify. If you're on Twitter, let me know there, at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there, at Ann Bogle, and at What Should I Read Next. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. 
Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.